Well, good morning once again. It is good to see half of your faces. Um, and it's good to have everybody online. Thank you guys for joining us and tuning in. If you have a Bible, grab it and open up to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1 is where we're going to be. Um, and while you're turning there, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Daniel Rico, who has done a lot throughout this whole time of transition and um, quarantine and live streaming to uh, make sure that we can still worship together and, and did as much as he could to help keep things normal. And then even in um, coming back to being in person, um, he has put a lot of time and energy into figuring out the best way to make this work, as well as the service order and things like the, the congregational prayer, so that's not just, you know, the two of us talking at you for an hour, but uh, to have us engaging with one another. So, And Daniel just does so much to care and love and serve this church. So thank you, Daniel, for everything you do all the time. You're wonderful. Um, as I said, we're going to be in First Peter. We started a new series last week called Solid Ground, Finding Stability in Unstable Days. Because ultimately, as Christians, we want to be a people who are grounded and stable even in the shaky days we find ourselves. And that's what Peter is, wants for the Christians in the churches he's writing to as well at that time. They are writing, they are living under persecution, they're living under oppression, and Peter is writing to say this is how to live well as a congregation, as a church, as a community. And so last week we talked about how Peter um, has the authority to write this letter, not because of himself, but because of Christ, that Christ gives him the authority to write this letter. And about we talked about our roles as elect exiles, that we are chosen by God, but we are strangers and foreigners here on earth. And because we are elect exiles, we are called to live like it. We are called to live like this isn't home, and we know that our true home is in heaven. That looks like being obedient to Christ in response to his death and resurrection. And to do that, we need a whole lot of grace and peace from God for ourselves and with and from one another. So this morning, as we jump into the letter, we're going to see two things. One, we're going to see the introduction of one of the major themes of First Peter, and that is something that this world desperately needs right now, hope, the confident expectation in God's control. And two, we're going to do something where, um, you know, in Scripture, there can be times where um, the writers are very clear and very direct, and there can be some instruction, some correction, some rebuking. All of these different things happen throughout Scripture. And then we have passages like what we have this morning where it's just worship. It's just a time where Peter is just, as he gets into writing this letter, and he's thinking about the churches he's writing to, and he's thinking about the God who put this all together, he just spends a while just worshiping God. And so my hope is this morning, that's what we're going to do, is that we're just going to uh, turn our eyes to Jesus, turn our eyes on God, that this passage just helps us remember just how wonderful and awesome our God is. But as I said, we're also going to talk about hope. Hope above hope is the confident expectation in God's control. We have hope that something better is coming. Something that isn't, something that says that this life is not all that there is. Something that says that there's something greater at work. Peter is going to say that we have a hope as Christians, and not just a hope but a living hope, an active hope. And because of that, because of God himself and who he is, we are elect exiles, are to be marked by joy. And Peter's going to say, we're going to talk about this morning, that we are to have joy as Christians, a joy that is, has no words to express it, a joy that is deep within our souls that goes beyond even being able to communicate it with words. So that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into 1 Peter 1. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. We thank you for who you are, for what you have done, what you are doing, what you're going to do in the future. 
God, as we open your word, your Bible teaches us, it instructs us, it corrects us, it encourages us, it rebukes us, it does so many things all at once. And Lord, we ask that it would do all those things for us this morning, that as we come to your word, that we would set aside the distractions, set aside the baggage that we walk into the church with, so that we could just be with you and engage with you and hear from you, be challenged by you, be encouraged by you, and then go out and live in response to what you have to say to us. God, we know this world desperately needs hope. And we also know that the only place to truly find it is in you. Help us to not forget that. Help us to not lose sight of that. and Help us to live like we actually believe it. As I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be applying to you. We pray all of this because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in 1 Peter uh, 1, starting in verse 3. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, pretend, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter's writing this letter, he's gotten done with the introduction, he's gotten done with who he is, he's gotten done with who he's writing to, and he gets into verse 3 and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wants to just spend some time worshiping God. Because of who he is, we praise him. Because of what we know about him, we praise him. Because of what we have yet to discover about him, but based on what we do know about him, we praise him. When Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Set apart, holy and reserved for reverence is the name of God. Just who God is, just his character, just his identity, who he is in himself, that's enough reason to stop and celebrate and worship and be in awe and amazed at him. We could stop there and we could fill the rest of our days until Christ comes back just worshiping him for who he is. But our God goes beyond that. Just who he is, and he goes beyond just who he is, and he's actively, intimately involved in our world. He didn't just create all of everything and then just wipe his hands and say, good luck, hope you make it to the end. No, he is actively, intimately involved in our world. He's not done. He's not done being involved. He's not done creating. He's not done calling things back to himself. 
In the Old Testament, often when God would speak or when a prophet would speak on his behalf, the opening line would be something like, I am the Lord your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or he would say, I am the Lord your God, the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. These were pivotal pivotal watershed moments and realities. They were reminders of the goodness and faithfulness and justice of God. But these things were about the Israelites. It was about him blessing them, him setting a covenant with them, him making them a people. For us, now, our watershed moment is that weekend in which Jesus died and rose from the dead. It's the cross. It's the empty tomb. It's the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Just as God took the Israelites out of Egypt and out of slavery and made them a people, he does the same for us through Christ. We were slaves to sin, trapped, helpless, and hopeless. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus to live, die, and rise again. To die for our sins. To take on our wrath, our judgment, our punishment, so that we might receive the forgiveness and righteousness of God. This happened because of, as Peter says, the great mercy of God. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve hell. We deserve death. But God in his great mercy decided to withhold those things from us and rather, because of his mercy and because of his love, he poured what we deserve out on Jesus at the cross. And to anyone who would put their faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins, there is forgiveness to be had and grace and mercy and new life to be had through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And again, just like we had just the character of God alone is reason enough to stop and worship and fill the rest of our days with worship, we could stop there at what God did through sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. And that's another reason to stop and just give thanks and worship and celebrate God. But he's still not done. Because of what Christ did at the cross, we have been born again. Those who have put their faith in him have been born again, reborn, made new, new person, new identity, new hopes, new relationship, new thinking, new compassions, new grace, new love, new and living hope. And we've talked the last couple of weeks about hope. And we said hope does not disappoint when it is found in Christ. Hope is the confident expectation of God's redeeming plan coming to fruition. And Peter says it's a living hope. Hey, Jim, can you put the verses up for verse 3? It should start with verse 3. Maybe. Yeah, it should say verse 3 on there. should be a bunch of scripture. Yep, keep going, keep going. There you go. Just stay there. That'll work. Thank you. He says we are in a living hope. It's living because we see it play out here and now. We see it here and now as God calls and redeems the world back to himself. Through his work in and through us, God is showing the world what living hope looks like. When we see the gospel actually lived out, not just talked about, not just theorized and written about, not just preached about, but actually lived. When we who have experienced grace and forgiveness and love and mercy and justice live those things out, when we are a people who are marked by those things, that is living hope flowing out of us and into the world. It's a living hope based wholly and solely on the living God who made it possible for us to experience this hope to begin with. 
As the song says, God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. And because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future. And life is worth the living just because He lives. When your hope is in the living and eternal Jesus Christ, you will never be disappointed. It will not fail you. No matter the storm, no matter the wind or the waves, no matter the darkness, when your hope is in Christ, it is living and cannot be killed or stopped by anything because it is found and grounded in the living and eternal Jesus Christ. We are given a living hope, and that living hope, another reason we could stop right there and say, God, you are good. Oh my God, how would you give us this hope and let us live into this and what you are doing in this world? And that's another reason to stop and celebrate and worship and honor God, but he's still not done. Because of the great mercy that God showed us in sending Jesus to die for us, to those who have put their faith in him, who have experienced this living hope, You have been adopted into the family of God. If you are a Christian, you are a son or daughter of God. And with that adoption comes with it a birthright, an inheritance as a child of God. We see in verse 4, Peter says that this inheritance is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. It is kept in heaven for you. And not only that, but by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter doesn't actually tell us here what the inheritance is. He tells us what it isn't. He tells us that it is kept waiting. It's kept safe. It is unaffected by rust or decay or death or toddlers the first time you give them a cup with no lid. It is precious and protected. This inheritance is clearly not of earth because it cannot fade away. It cannot waste away. It has no defects or problems. Now, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that we are co-heirs with Christ, which means we share in the inheritance reserved for the eternal Son of God who made all things, holds all things together, and is King of all things. So what is this inheritance? The inheritance waiting for us, Peter says in verse 5, is our salvation. We are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He'll say again in verse 9 that salvation is the outcome of our faith. So what does that mean? Because if our salvation is the inheritance, it is what we are waiting for. If we are waiting for our salvation to be revealed to us, does that mean we're not saved right now? And really, if you take a step back and you think about what the book, what the Bible has to say, Proverbs 13 is going to tell you that hope deferred, hope you got to wait on, makes the heart sick. Langston Hughes famously suggested, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it fester or rot or explode? So then, in the midst of this declaration from Peter about the great and awesomeness of God and these reasons to worship, where does this land, this idea that our salvation is not now but later? Or our inheritance is our salvation. We are saved from the wrath of sin, the wrath of hell. We are saved from those things. And yes, there is a day where we will stand before God and those things, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you will be counted as righteous and welcomed into heaven. It is for eternity, yes, but your salvation is for right now as well. It is for right now and eternity. 
Because right now, if you have put your faith in Christ, you have been saved. Christians, you right now are children of God. Which means right now, we have unfettered access, can go boldly before the throne of God as a child to their dad with anything and everything. We are right now secure as his children. Right now, we experience and possess the full and complete access and power of the Holy Spirit in and through us. Our salvation affects us right now, but it does also affect our future. Because we are saved from the wrath of God, we are saved from hell, because we are a people, all people, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian, everyone is going to live for eternity. It's just a matter of where. Because if you are a Christian, you have waiting for you a new resurrected body. You have waiting for you a brand new heaven and earth remade in which you will reign and rule alongside Christ. That is our inheritance waiting for us, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It says that this inheritance is being kept for us. This word kept is not that it has to just be protected, right? Does God, have to, God doesn't have to protect anything that's in heaven. It's, it's there. It's perfect. It's more like the idea where you buy a gift for someone. My son's birthday is tomorrow, and so we bought gifts for him. You have a gift waiting for them, and you keep it safe, and you make sure it's, it's ready to go, and you're so excited to give it to him, but you want to keep everything perfect until that day when you get to give it to him. That's the idea. You have this inheritance waiting for you that God is so excited to give you that he's making sure, oh, man, this is going to be so perfect when they get here. This is going to be wonderful. Jesus says, I go to build you. I go to prepare rooms for you. I go to get things ready for you, and it's going to be awesome when you get there. Our inheritance is, yes, for eternity, but it begins now. It begins now in our relationship with God changing as we go from rebels and enemies to sons and daughters. But at the same time, we wait for the greatness that is to come. See, our hope is not deferred, but it's experienced and it continues on into eternity. We do not grow sick or rot or fester because we know our hope is living, our hope is active. And we experience it in glimpses now and fully and completely on that day we meet Jesus. When we meet Jesus face to face, that means all of this, everything about this earth is done. It's over. It's no more keep trying. No more need for perseverance. No more need for just hang on a little longer. No more need to cling to the hope of a better day coming, of a future promise fulfilled, but rather that promise will be fulfilled and we can just be. This world is exhausting and there is a day coming where we get to just be and rest. That's the inheritance waiting for us. But while we wait, while we persevere, while we endure, we don't do so alone. And we don't do it on our own either. We do so under the guide, under the protection, under the power of God. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. When we wander from the flock, he is the good shepherd that goes looking for us and carries us back. When we want to try and keep Jesus at a distance, when we want to look at him from afar, when we want to climb up in our tree and just kind of keep him at arm's length, he comes up to us, calls us down from the tree and says, I want to have a meal with you. I want to have a relationship with you. 
He does not leave us alone on our own, but instead he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that makes verse 6 much more understandable as Peter's going to talk about rejoicing in trials when he says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ is with us. God is with us even in the darkness. He says, rejoice, even though you have been grieved for a little while. So what's a little while? Depends on how you view time. A little while can be 20 minutes. A little while could be 20 years, depending on your viewpoint. But as far as our viewpoint goes, Peter's talking about eternity. He's talking about our inheritance which is eternity with God in perfection. Eternity waiting for us. So when we talk about a little while, we've got to keep eternity in mind. And so, Pastor Francis Chan does this illustration, and I just straight up am going to borrow it from him. You can YouTube a much better version of it. But, uh, Monica, can you come here for a sec? Take that and socially distance. Just take a walk. Just keep going. This is the ultimate social distance act. Yeah, keep going. Just keep going. You got a bunch more. Yeah. Just keep stretching out. Keep going all the way back. I'll let you come back, I promise. That's good. That's good. You can put it down. You can come back. You can just put it down. Yeah, thank you. This rope, you can come back, Monica. You're good. This rope is your life starting at conception into eternity. And I don't got enough rope to show you how far eternity goes. We'd be down at Western and then some. This right here, that's your time on earth. The 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years you get here. Everything else is eternity. So when we think about a little while, this right here, this is what you got. And little while, fiery trials that are a little while are slivers of slivers of this. And even if you add them up, even if you add up all of the hard weeks, all of the hard months, all of the hard years, this, in comparison to that. When we begin to view our life in relation to eternity, Little doesn't seem so long. Very long doesn't seem very long. When we start thinking about just how far eternity goes. Now when I say all of this, I don't do so to minimize your trials or to minimize the grief and hurt and pain that comes with our trials. There's a reason Peter says that our trials are fire that burns so hot it burns away the impurities of gold. The pain and grief and trials that we can experience in this world are hard and ugly and messy and they hurt. I want you to take comfort because one, it's a little while. And two, God is with you. God is for you. God is protecting you. And he is using your trials to strengthen you. 
So that when, not if, but when you come through those trials, you have a faith stronger and more valuable than anything this world has to offer. And that strength and that value that your faith now holds, it's going to help you. It's going to help you to continue to walk with Christ. It's going to help you in your maturing. It's going to help you grow and be a stronger and stronger Christian. And when you face more and more trials, you will be able to endure them even more so because you've already gone through some. But the strength and value of your faith and the strength and value of your walk is also going to hold great value to the people around you. To those who see your faith being tested and the strength growing from it. To those who see the realness of your faith shining through. To those who see that the reality that Christianity is not just a thought exercise or a worthless endeavor, but it is that being a Christian is real and matters now and has great impact on you and those around you. I have watched my mother-in-law and father-in-law walk through fiery trial after fiery trial after fiery trial. And I've seen them and I've seen my wife come through these things with a stronger desire to know Christ deeper with a stronger hunger and thirst to experience more of Him, with a passion and love of God set and secure and unwavering no matter what this world throws at them. And I see those things, and it pushes me to want to pursue that God even more, to know Him better, to grow in my own faith, because I see the hope and the joy they have in and through the fiery trials that they endure. How you live, how you respond matters, not just for you, but to others around you. You can impact the faith of others as you live and walk and share your story and share your life with those around you. You have an impact on them, even on other Christians who might need a spark or some encouragement or some challenge. Now, Peter understands when he writes this letter to these Christians, he understands that his experience is much different than just about any other Christian. Right? He knew Jesus. He got to spend time with him. He had meals with him. He hung out with Jesus. He got to see and be with him. The original recipients of this letter didn't. We don't. So when we walk through our trials, it can be easy to feel alone. To feel like God is nowhere to be found. And the last thing we want to do when life is hard and messy and dark is to respond well, let alone rejoice. But Peter says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, do not know him. though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This verse 8 and 9 is kind of a self-check. It's a little bit of an inventory that you take for yourself. Peter says, look, you're going to go through trials. And it's going to be hard. But there's a purpose. God is at work in the mess. He is the king in the chaos. He is in control of all things all the time. So in in those times, can you still rejoice? Do you have Joy. Not just I'm happy all the time. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about joy. A deep belief in the faithfulness of God that allows you to trust Him and worship Him in any and all situations. Even though we haven't seen Him and don't see Him now, we are to rejoice, Peter says, inexpressibly. 
That word is a made-up word. It's only used one time. I think, we think Peter might have made the word up. The word here is anekleletas. And I say that not to be that guy, but that's just one of those words that, like, it's just a good word. The word itself is almost unutterable, and that's what it means, literally, unutterable. It is the guttural response of awesomeness that overcomes us in the greatest of moments. For those of you who are married, fellas, it's that moment when the doors open and you see your bride for the first time in her wedding dress on the wedding day. That feeling within you, that is anekleletas. For those of you who are parents, that first time the doctor puts the baby in your arms, that is anekleletas. It is this unutterable, guttural thing. When you have that person in your life who you have been praying over and praying for, and you share the gospel with them over and over again, and they finally finally the Holy Spirit breaks through and they accept Christ to be their Savior and you have this reaction and it's an excitement and you can't contain yourself and it comes out just not even in words but in noise of celebration. That is what we are called to have. That's the kind of joy Christians are called to have. Because when we consider what we have been saved from, how we were destined for hell, how we were saved through Christ coming to earth, living and dying on the cross the way he did, why we were saved, the great love and mercy that God had for us to send his son to die for us, what we are saved to, what waits for us that day when we get to meet with Jesus face to face and be with him for eternity, when we take all of that into consideration, even in the midst of the hard, dark, ugly, there should still be joy. And if there's not, that's something I would say take to God and pray and say, why am I lacking in joy in this area of my life? Because it's probably revealing that your hope in that area is not actually in God, it's in you. Or it's in a circumstance, or it's in a relationship, or it's in your stuff. When those things are taken from you, when you suffer in those moments, and joy is nowhere to be found, it's telling you that, hey, your hope is not in Christ in this situation, it's in that stuff that just got taken from you. And once you start to learn that, see, this is kind of like the trials. The fiery trials we go through are kind of like a spiritual MRI. It's going to reveal the issues. And then you can go back and say, Christ, God, help me to develop a new hope in those places so that I can experience this joy in those places. Because this reality of our salvation, the reality of this inheritance waiting for us, of even what we are living and experiencing now, Peter says, it has been in the works throughout history. And it's shocking when we really take a, think about it and take it into the grand scope of things. In verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. What he says in verses 10, 11, and 12 is that when you read the Old Testament and you have the prophets, you have Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and they speak about the Son of Man, or they speak about the suffering servant, or you know whoever hangs on a tree is to be cursed, or... The prophet Micah talks about little Bethlehem, you little town that is of no importance. You are going to have great worth and a great legacy because that's where Christ will be born. You have all these different prophecies about the Christ, about the Messiah. What he's saying is that they were looking, those prophets were looking out into the distance and they could see a glimpse. They could see a shadow, a sort of kind of hazy picture coming, but it wasn't quite able to be made out yet. What they saw in part when it comes to the Messiah what they saw in part when it comes to Christ and this promise that God made when Adam and Eve bit into the fruit that he would send one who would crush Satan and redeem and restore all things. What they saw in part 
What they saw that was kind of fuzzy and far off for us now is in clear, full, perfect picture in Christ. He says to his original readers, he says to the church, you have a better seat to God's redeeming of humanity than your brothers and sisters that came before you did because you now are on this side of the cross. You know what God has done. And that's an amazing thought because when you think about like David, right? David says in Psalm 119, he said, God's word is sweet like honey on my lips. In another psalm, he talks about how he delights in the law of the Lord. It is on his mind when he wakes up in the morning. It is on his mind when he goes to bed at night. And when David says those things about the Bible, David's got like, like this, not even First Samuel because he's in First. Okay, he's got like this much of the text, right? He's got the parts of the Bible that make us go to sleep. He's got the parts of the Bible that like when you're reading it in the year, read through the year program and you get to Leviticus and then you quit. That's the part that David said, it's sweet on my lips. I dwell on that. I enjoy, I rejoice in that. How much more do we have? How much more can we look back on and how much more should we delight in what God has been doing throughout history? Because as Peter says to them, to the original readers, he says, you have a better seat in history than what those in the Old Testament did. I would argue that here in 2020, we have an even greater seat because we've seen the gospel move throughout the world, a much bigger world now than it was. We've seen it endure through wars and oppression and violence and corruption. We've seen the gospel. We've seen God's church continue no matter what. Over and over, those who have attacked the church and God's church has continued to thrive. The gospel has continued to go forward and no matter what happens, it continues to bring hope and healing and newness all around the world. What God is doing throughout history, throughout humanity, is so amazing, so inexplainable, so remarkable, so surprising. Peter puts this little tag at the end of verse 12. He says, these things are things that into which angels long to look. Angels are real. They exist. That's a whole other sermon for a different day, but that's... These supernatural beings, their home address is God's house. They live and dwell in the presence of God. They are created with a power and majesty about them that when they show up in the Old Testament, humans, when they meet angels, hit the ground in worship. They don't know how else to respond. They have to hit the ground and worship. The angel has to tell them, hey, get up. I'm not the one to worship. But they're so amazing that in comparison to who we are, humans just react with awe and wonder. These terrifyingly awesome, powerful beings see what God is doing here on earth what he has done throughout history to redeem us back to himself, what it took to save us in sending Jesus to suffer and die on the cross for our sins, what he does in making us more and more like Jesus, the angels see all of that and they are blown away. They long to be part of it. These otherworldly creatures with a knowledge and understanding and power that far exceeds ours are amazed at God's working out of our salvation in us. They are blown away by it. And we, here on earth, we let our Bibles collect dust, we show up to church when it's convenient, and we pray, eh, kinda. Our desire to pursue God and actually live out the faith we claim to have fluctuates moment to moment. 
Brothers and sisters, do not take for granted your salvation and the inheritance waiting for you. But rather, day by day, rediscover, re-remind yourself of the good news that God is for you and not against you. That God loves you and loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you. Because this reality of our living hope is another reason we should stop and celebrate and worship and honor God. And he's still not done because he's still at work. He's still at work in you and through you, redeeming and saving and renewing all things until Christ comes back. It is no wonder that Peter begins his letter in just worshiping God. Because when you stop and think about him, you stop and think about who he is and what he has done and what he is doing and what you know he's going to do, how do you respond in any other way? My prayer and my hope for us this morning is that we would do as one of the famous songs says, and that's turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May we always be a people of inexpressible joy at the glory and grace of God. Let's pray. God, we thank and praise you, our Father, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, thank you. Thank you that you are so full of mercy toward us that you have caused us to be reborn to a new life and a living hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, that would be enough. It would be more than enough. But beyond that, you call us your children. And with that role comes an inheritance, one that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. An inheritance that you are keeping, you are protecting for us until our time to receive it fully. Again, God, that would be so, so much more than enough. But beyond that, you are with us and protecting and guarding us as we walk through this earth seeking to be your lights. Lord, remind us. Remind us that you do not waste time. That no matter the fiery trial we experience, you are with us, strengthening us, using all things for our good and your glory. Lord, we want hearts that respond at all times with love and inexpressible joy and worship that you deserve. God, we realize that we stand on the shoulders of generations of brothers and sisters who would love to have lived and seen the church as it is now. We know we're not perfect. We know your church is not perfect here yet now, but we're still here. Your church is still here, still fighting the good fight, still running the race, still proclaiming your good news. Lord, let us not take for granted. Let us not minimize. Let us not forget or lose sight of the good news of your love and grace and mercy poured out on us in Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here, anyone who hears this who does not know you, who has not put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, who has not experienced this living hope, God, I pray that this morning, right now, your Holy Spirit does what he does, that he breaks down barriers, he pushes down walls, that he convicts and calls those to be forgiven to accept the grace and mercy offered to them by putting their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, we thank you for what you have been doing, what you are doing, and what you're going to do. 
We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.